here will be Friday rather than Wednesday. Time is still 2 p.m., so 2 o'clock on Friday. Senior Citizens Luncheon sponsored by the kids. I got invited that because I'm the minister. <laughs> I wanted to clarify. <clears throat> All right. I, I kind of took a side trip last evening uh, on that thing of separation and everything since it was in the story about Lot, but I think once in a while for us to go and review some of those basic scriptures on why we do certain things uh, is a good thing for us to do, uh, not only on that subject perhaps, but others, because uh, it got into uh, dating and with the young people and the singles and, and so on, as well as the the separation that God is expecting us to do from the rest of the world, all of us, so it, it wasn't designed for anyone in particular except all of us. Um, but let's get on with the story here in Genesis 19 this evening. <clears throat> we finally got Lot out of Sodom, of Sodom and... Uh, his wife looked back, and we left off there where she had become a pillar of salt. So it picks up the story in verse 27. And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Eternal. He had gone out with Christ there for a ways, remember, walking him away from his, his own tent. And then the angels went on, and Christ went wherever he went. Um... So he went out to the same place where he could probably, I, I suppose, where he could overlook the valley to see what things looked like because he knew what the angels were, what their mission was, and uh, he wanted to go out and see what had happened. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. So... I think I commented last night what it said there, that it, it took the plains, it took the towns, it took the ground, the things that were growing there. It just burned the whole area up. So he looked, and it looked like the whole countryside was smoking like a furnace. So that must have been quite a sight for him to see. <coughs> and I guess it probably also impressed upon him all the more how much that God is God. You know, that that is a lesson that we have to get through our heads that is very, very difficult to do. How much God is God and how human we are. As righteous as Job was, that was something that he had great difficulty with and which God had to show him through some very strong lessons. <clears throat> and sick Satan directly on him so that he could see that God is God. And sometimes we see things that, that impress us. Well, there really is a God. There is somebody there that answers prayers or that does punish or does give judgment. Uh, and then it's easy for us to go our way and get our mind on the things that we're doing and maybe kind of forget 
what lessons we might have learned. So Abraham's life, it seems, is one lesson after another. And what he saw there that had happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm sure, had a very, very deep impression on him. And he was emotionally involved. He had argued with Christ, you know, six or seven times there about whether or not it should be destroyed or not. And uh, when, he, when he got it down to ten and there weren't ten, he lost that argument and it was done anyway. So... I'm sure he wanted to take a peek the next morning and wonder what had happened. Uh, and it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in the which Lot dwelt. Uh, is it possible that God would have gone ahead and destroyed Lot and his family there had Abraham not been the righteous man that he was and interceded for any that might be righteous there. Rather than destroying the city with Lot in it, there were certainly not ten righteous people there, uh, he went ahead and got Lot out. And I think it says right here that God remember Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. If, it, if Abraham had not intervened, it's very possible God would have killed Lot and his family. <laughs> and even when they were delivered, they hung back. It wasn't just his wife that looked back, but he lingered. And the sons-in-law didn't go at all. They stayed. But the angels realized they were out of it and just set the daughters and uh, Lot and his wife out. And Lot went up out of Zoar, little town, and dwelt in the mountain. <laughs> where God had told him to go in the first place. But after he saw that destruction rain down uh, all over that plain, and Zoar was the only thing, I guess, there that had survived it, and he looked around the next morning at the smoke and the fire and the brimstone and uh, picked his way quickly to the mountain. He wasn't near as afraid of the mountain as he had been. So he went and dwelt in the mountain and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar. And he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. He wasn't quite sure. Well, you know, this would be pretty shock, pretty shocking. His sons-in-law is left behind. His wife turned into a pillar of salt behind him. And, uh, and then he gets into Zoar. Next morning he wakes up and there's nothing but smoke all the way around. Probably petrified the guy. I think I'll go live in a cave. The firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man in the earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. I don't know how long they lived in the cave before the daughters began to think and wonder, uh, you know, what do we do? Because after they had seen that smoke, they apparently thought that all mankind had been wiped out. They were the only ones left alive. Now, I, I don't know how that squares with the fact that they had been in Zoar when it happened, and Zoar hadn't been destroyed, and they'd been able to get out and go to the mountains, because obviously there have been people left in Zoar. Now, they may have thought that uh, Zoar also had been burned up and all the people there killed. 
Maybe they came to that conclusion. But uh, they said, we're young. There's only one man left on earth. What are we going to do to perpetuate the race? There was a lot of really strange, twisted reasoning back there. Uh, maybe living in Sodom and Gomorrah changed some things. I, I don't know. This, this, is, this is really ribald. Strange story. Anyway, come let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he perceived not when she lay down nor when she arose. So he was, they, they fed him booze until he completely passed out, utterly zonked, gone, uh, before they went in and, and did what they did. And it came to pass on the morrow that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay yesternight with my father. Let us make him drink wine this night also. Uh, and go you in and lie with him that we may preserve seed of our father. I, I, I don't understand this. I, I didn't read any Protestant commentaries because I really doubt they'd have shed any light on it. They probably tried to explain it away spiritually some way. We won't even try to go into how they accomplished this with a man zonked and completely passed out, but somehow they got the job done. And they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger rose and lay with him, and he perceived not when she lay down or when she rose. Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. So on successive nights, they both managed to get pregnant. And the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, the same as the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami the same as the father of the children of Ammon to this day. So uh, the Ammonites and Moabites, are, we have felt, are probably the nation of Jordan today. Uh, Ammon, or Ammon, is the, name, is the capital city of Jordan. And uh, those, that race of people began with the incest here between Lot and his two daughters. I don't know what else to say about that story except let's move on to chapter 20. <clears throat> and Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country and dwelt with Kadesh, between Kadesh and Shur, and sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. She must have yet, here, she's, she's 90 years old here, or almost. She must have really been a knockout for Pharaoh and now Abimelech to, I mean, you know, there were all kinds of young women around, and for some reason, she must have really been a nice-looking lady. Uh, so he, he did the same lie he had done before. <laughs> he hadn't learned from the first time. Uh, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are but a dead man. For the woman which you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you slay also a righteous nation? He said, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. I, I didn't know, and I haven't touched her. Said he not to me, she is my sister. And she, even she herself said, he is my brother, like Abraham had coached her. 
should you lie for your husband? Or then you're both wrong. Ananias and Sapphira reminds me of that story again. They didn't confront them both. They confronted him, and he lied. And they waited until she was alone, didn't tell him what had ha- tell her what had happened to the husband, and confronted her to see if she also would lie. And they'd made a deal, and she lied also, so they both died. He is, even she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I you not to touch her. An interesting point, I think, to make here is that God was able to manipulate this man's mind so that he didn't touch her for the whole time that she was there. And we'll see a little later on that she was probably there for quite some time. But God was able to turn the gear in his mind so that... I mean, she was obviously very attractive to him, or he wouldn't have taken her in the first place. Uh, And then God said, I change things in your head. I think we can pray and ask God to help us control our thoughts, to be involved in our minds. Uh, we, you know, Satan comes and possesses minds. He heavily influences them in a wrong way. And some of us may have seen heavy demon influence from time to time. Uh, and Satan can put thoughts in our minds. I don't know whether you've experienced or not, but I have. I know what my mind is like most of the time, and I ain't telling you. But uh, at times, over the years, I've had thoughts come into my mind that weren't my normal way of thinking, even my normal bad way of thinking. I mean, it just wasn't normally part of the thought process that my mind would go through, but these strange thoughts would come in from left field. And I have always been very aware when something like that would happen, I would rebuke it immediately. Eternal rebuke you. Put that thought away because I realized that it might have come from Satan. It wasn't a thought maybe that I normally would have. Maybe some of the bad thoughts that we do sometimes entertain come from him too, and we need to rebuke them. But if Satan has, what I'm driving at here is if Satan has the capacity, the spirit, I mean the prince of the power of the air, as Herbert Armstrong always said, he was able able to broadcast negative thoughts, negative vibes. And a lot of the sin that goes on on the earth is a result of the influence of Satan that he has on the natural, normal human mind. So if Satan has the capacity to plant thoughts in people's heads, wouldn't you think God would have the same power? Now, God isn't there to control your mind. Satan would like to do that, even take over and dwell in it and possess it. And he he does at times with people. Uh, But God... When he, when he sees a wrong being done, 
has the capacity to alter your thinking. And that kind of alteration, I think we can ask for in the right way. I withheld you from sinning against me. Now, if Abimelech had pursued her uh, knowing that she was a married woman, God would have had a different viewpoint, and he might have let him go ahead and sin, and he probably would have punished him then. Well, because of Abraham's righteousness and basically of Sarah's, I don't know whether he'd allowed that in that case or not anyway. But because Abimelech was being honorable as far as he knew, God intervened and saved him from sinning. So he said in verse 7, Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for you, and you shall live. And if you restore her not, know that you shall surely die, you and all that are yours. Therefore Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their ears, and the men were sore afraid. Well, for one thing, Abimelech was always the central authority in his own kingdom, and anything he said went. So the fact that he would tell a story and admit that there was a higher authority than him that could kill him uh, must have impressed them deeply because he was the authority. He was the one that held life and death in his hands. And if he was afraid of God, then they were afraid too, sore afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And what have I offended you that you brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. He just faced him right down with it. And I would say that Abimelech was correct. Abraham had done something that he should not have done. Abimelech said to Abraham, What saw you that you have done this thing? What were you thinking, man? And Abraham said, Because I thought. Surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. So here again he had the same weakness that he had had before. Uh, he was afraid that he would be killed. Uh, he justified telling a lie in order to save his hide. And here again, I would say, what must Sarah have felt uh, when she was asked to lie, more or less? It was a half-truth, I guess, half-sister. But that may have been difficult for her, too. He tried to explain and yet indeed, she is my sister, she is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So <laughs> he gives this lame explanation, Abimelech was scared half to death, and so were his men, because he could have died over this thing. Now, you say, why would Abraham make the same mistake two times? Why didn't he learn the first time? Well, why don't you and I? How many times have we made the same mistake over and over? I bet I've made the same mistake over and over more than twice. 
not this same mistake, but whatever mistakes I've made, uh, we go on and on and on, you'd think. Once burned, we'd straighten up, but that's not, just not the way human beings are. So I think that we should find a little encouragement here uh, in this story of Abraham, that even a man who turned out to be the father of the faithful had growing pains. He had difficult, difficulty controlling his fear, controlling relationships, and he made the same mistake twice in a row. Uh, God used the man anyway. He worked with him anyway because his character overall was good, and yet he had a weakness here that he had to be tested on more than once. So there's hope for you and me. Let's see, where was I? Uh, verse 13, And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house, remember God had told him, take your stuff and go, that I said to her, This is your kindness which you shall show to me. At every place where we shall come, say of me, He is my brother. He made a deal with her ahead of time. Everywhere we go, I'm not going to be your husband. How would you like that, girls? Every, every, everywhere you go and meet somebody, say, this is my sister. I know how my wife would feel about that. Why? You don't think enough of me, you'll even admit who I am? That wouldn't go over really, really well. I guess he knew his weakness. <laughs> and he knew he would do this over and over again. <laughs> Whatever. But I jest a little bit, but, you know, he was a human being. And he had his fears, his doubts, his discouragement, his insecurities. So he was dealing with them in the best way that he knew how, but it wasn't really the best way to handle it. Anyway, verse 14, And Abimelech took sheep and oxen and men servants and women servants and gave them to Abraham and restored him Sarah, his wife. So the guy kind of reminds me a little bit here of Pharaoh, you know. Take whatever you want. Go. Just, just get out of sight. Uh, the, you, you just scared me. Go away. And Abimelech said, Behold, <laughs> Behold my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Go away from here, and my land's all out there. Pick yourself a spot, but, you know, I think he wanted him a ways away from him. Sarah said, and unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to you a covering of the eyes unto all that are with you and with all other. Thus she was reproved. Didn't he, in that sense, cover his eyes as to who she was and wasn't part of this responsibility also on her for following through with the lie? Why didn't she just say, Abraham, I think you're being a little bit of a jerk here. Why don't you admit who I am and tell everybody and we'll stand together and we'll trust in God to take care of us 
We won't worry about these Gentile kings. There is a time to stand up to your husband and not just be mousy about it. Your husband is not always right. I don't care what you think. He's not always right. And there are times to tell him he's not right. Whether he likes it or not. But why should you both suffer? Because he's being off the wall about something. There is one thing in being in subjection and respecting and honoring him and following his lead, if he'll lead. But there's other thing about just being a pushover, a walkover, a tromp on. You, you don't need to be that. A martyred myrtle, I used to call him, I think. Basil Wolverton used that in the uh, series he did. Remember the picture of Martyred Myrtle? We need to understand we're co-heirs together and that a man is not better than his wife. Maybe we don't have any male chauvinist pigs left. Let me look around. Uh, but a man is not better than his wife. They are co-heirs together of the grace of life. Now, God has given man certain uh, capacities that should put him in leadership of the family if he uses those correctly. But he's supposed to treat his wife as his own flesh, and she's supposed to show great respect for him. So that they work together toward God's kingdom. But is it right that he can correct her and you have to take it because I'm the boss. And yet if he does something wrong, she has to shut up because she's in subjection? I don't think so. If he can't take guidance, input, correction from his wife, then he's got way, way, way too much pride. That's all there is to it. Well, sometimes she may be right, sometimes she may be wrong. And a man may have to make the decision ultimately anyway, whether she likes it or not. But we should listen. God has given women a great deal of intuition and perception and ability to read people. Uh, they are the moral guardians of the nation. They're the ones that rear the kids, basically the ones that teach them the right kind of morals, the right kind of way of thinking because they're with them day in and day out. Uh, and women tend to be, in some respects, and of course it's, it's all over the map, but women do tend to be a little more honest, a little more uh, giving in some respects than men do because they have to teach their children how they should think and live. It is, to a great degree, their responsibility. What is it in Proverbs that says that if you, uh, a rebellious child brings shame on its mother, in some respects more than on the father, because the mother is the daily teacher of morals to those children. So she holds a heavy responsibility. So I'll tell you what, guys. If a woman has the capacity to take 
your brats and turn them into good citizens, you might ought to listen to her once in a while. She's got something going for her. Or she couldn't do with children what she does. You try being house mother and raising kids for a while and putting up with it all day long. If you got three, you got a three ring circle. If you got circus, you got six, you got a six ring circus. I'm I'm not uh I'm not even wanting to go there. I'm glad God made women and gave them the capacities that He gave them. Now we need to respect their abilities. And they often have good ideas and good thoughts. Anyway, moving on. Uh, he gave a thousand pieces of silver and told her what he had done for Abraham. And she was reproved. She realized she had a part in that. And she shouldn't have lied. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bore children. For the Eternal had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. As I said last night, or whenever I commented on that ahead of the story, she must have been there quite some time for it to even have been evidence that the wombs were closed and that later they were opened. Well, God had the capacity to cause them not to be able to get pregnant or to cause them to be able to, and did in this case, until the matter was settled. <clears throat> Chapter 21, And the Eternal visited Sarah, as he had said, he had given an appointed time, and said, From the time appointed, you'll become pregnant, you will have a son. As he had said, and the Eternal did to Sarah as he had spoken, for Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. So he left it open-ended for decades. And then when he came, he told him, at a set time, set appointed time, you're going to conceive, and at the time of life, nine months later, you will have a son. Now, I presume that nothing was going on in the meantime. Uh, he was uh, impotent, and she was past the time, so this had to be a miracle in both of them. She had to be able to produce a seed, and he had to be able to engender a child. So it was an absolute miracle. I just wondered how that would have worked out. You know, nothing going for several years, or quite a few years. And one night he pokes her and says, Sarah, wake up. It's a miracle. She says, go back, sleep, Abraham. I'm trying to get some sleep here and quit poking me in the back with your elbow. And he said, that's not my elbow. We have a miracle here. Anyway, Abraham called the name of his son that was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Isaac means laughter. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, 
God has made me to laugh so that all that hear will laugh with me. So we're supposed to laugh here. This, this whole thing was done over so many decades of time, and I understand why the girl would laugh behind the tent flap. I mean, even when, remember, Abraham fell down on the ground laughing. It, was, it just struck him funny. And it did her the same way. The, the thing is that she didn't want to admit she had laughed. And Christ called her out on it and said, yeah, but you did laugh. But they had a sense of humor about life and about the trials and troubles, the tribulations they'd gone through. So the son was named Laughter. She says, everybody that hears this story is going to laugh with me. Well, it's kind of an interesting comment for her to make. She, she knew that Abraham was, would be the father of many nations. Abraham, I'm sure, had told her that God had said, not Hagar and Ishmael, but it's going to be Sarah and Isaac. So she knew. And that being the case, she also knew that this story would never, ever go away. So she says, if I laugh, and I'm going to name him Laughter, I want everybody that reads this story from now on to laugh with me. You know, sometimes it's good if we can laugh at ourselves uh, instead of just always laughing at somebody else. I, I, I like Sarah. Just that, one, just that one verse there makes me like Sarah, that, that she would have that kind of a sense of humor about her. Isn't laughter a part of our lives? Joy and happiness. Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit of God. And laughter makes fat, or makes, uh, I'm mixing two metaphors here. Laughter does good like a medicine, I think, or, or I think is one of the Proverbs. And, uh, Sometimes when we're uptight or things haven't gone too well, if we can just sit back and see the humor in it and laugh, it relaxes us. It, it takes the nerve problems away and we just feel better after a good laugh. So God is very much into humor. He made us that way as a stress reliever, as a, a way of easing uh, life when it gets difficult to be able to laugh and, and joke about things is a good thing. It's just that humor and laughter, like anything else, is a very, very difficult thing to control and know how to use and when to use and who to use on without hurting feelings. And, you know, humor can be a wonderful thing, and yet it can also be hurtful if we're not careful in how we do it. I know just today we were doing an awful lot of giving people hard time and kidding them about this and that and the other thing. and. And I don't think anybody got offended. If you did, you shouldn't ought to have. <laughs> We're just having a good time, dissing each other and giving each other a hard time. But it was all in good fun with the right attitude behind it. Just, just kidding and having a good time. And I, I don't think that that is a wrong type of thing. It's when it gets a little mean-spirited and a little too-pointed and a little too personal 
where people would take it wrong that sometimes we have to be careful. But good-natured kidding uh, is fun, and I think God intended it. Anyway, verse 7, and she said, Who would have said to Abraham, she's continuing this line of thought, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? For I have borne him a son in his old age. Who would have thought such a thing could happen? She's marveling at the miracles that God created to make this possible. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made, him, made a great feast the same day Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, which she had borne, had borne unto Abraham, mocking. So Ishmael was mocking uh, at the party given to Isaac. A little brotherly jealousy there. The older brother realized, I'm sure, that Isaac was the favored son of Abraham, favored son of, I, of uh, Sarah, and that his mother was on the outs and had been all along as a result of the attitude she'd had to Sarah when she herself had gotten pregnant. Well, these things don't go away, you know. I remember on one side of our family back two or three generations, well, actually, yeah, a couple generations, I guess, there was this thing that didn't get talked about, it got whispered about, about who was the real father of that child in one branch of the family. And it's, it was a story that just never would go away. And the kid got, grew up looking more like this guy than that guy anyway, you know, and, and uh, so it kind of confirmed the story. But those things, once they're in a family, once they're there, they don't just go away. They, they're sore spots forever, forever, always there. Do you see from that a little bit what adultery can do? For those who like each other or in lust or love or whatever might be the, the case at hand, they think, well, you know, then they just go ahead and do whatever they feel like doing. But then a child is born of that, and it is a cloud over the family forevermore. And it just never goes away. An illegitimate birth, uh, it just never goes away. There is always that there. So sin can have repercussions, well, God himself said, for three and four generations afterward. Uh, things happen. Anywhere, anyway, she saw the son mocking her own son, and that got her dander up. Wherefore, she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son. She didn't say, cast out this woman I gave you to be your wife. <laughs> cast out this bondwoman and her son. She took the wife part away here. Uh, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. Have you heard people like that? Husband and wife often will not refer to it as our child. It's my child. And usually that's a tip-off that there are problems in the marriage. 
Now, there are times, of course, when you'll say, my kid. But I'm talking about when it's said with a certain edge in the voice, my child. Uh, like you're, the way you're saying it, you're pushing the other parent away. Uh, and, you know, we're headed to divorce court, this is my child. So, that's the attitude that Sarah was in here, sounds like. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. I'm seeing his oivey. No, he wasn't a Jew, was he? Uh, you know, he had been fighting this attitude between Sarah and Hagar all these years, and he knew that God had said Isaac would be the son of promise, even though God would make a great nation of, of Ishmael, but it still was a sore spot. It's one of the problems with polygamy. Uh, it was legal to have polygamy back in those days. It wasn't God's original intent from the beginning, and Christ changed that back in the New Testament, but uh, nonetheless, it was at that time legal. You could do it without having the wrath of God upon you. But look at the fruits of it. Anytime you see polygamous situations in the, the congregation of Israel or our forebears, it created problems. Jealousy, anger, hatred, misery, uh, some rejected. It's bad enough when all the kids are from the same set of parents and they still show favoritism one to another. You know, in some cases, parents will show a favoritism toward one son or one daughter and not toward the others. And, and the children sense that so fast. They pick up on that. They know which one's the favorite. And it hurts them deeply. And it makes their life sometimes very difficult because they know they are not favored. For some reason, you know, the youngest one or the oldest one or one, one just seemed to have a better attitude somehow or, or made the mom and dad feel closer to them than the others. And it makes it difficult. And you can't hide those things from the children. You might try, but you can't hide them. They, they sense it. They feel it. They know it. And we're doing them a disfavor uh, in that case. And, and poor Ishmael here was being done a disfavor. And Hagar as well. But the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. And God said to Abraham, let it not be grievous in your sight because of the lad and because of your bondwoman. He's saying, I had a purpose and an intent here in the beginning and things went awry and, and you guys didn't always listen to me and do what I said and you took things into your own hands. But he said, don't worry about it. I'm still going to do what I promised and here's what you're to do. Uh, in all that Sarah has said to you, hearken to her voice, for in Isaac shall your seed be called. Now, it didn't seem fair what Sarah was saying, does it, to you as you read the story? It doesn't seem fair. What about poor Ishmael and Hagar? And yet God said, your wife's right in this case. What was I saying a few minutes ago? Abraham, listen to your wife once in a while. It was a bad deal all the way around. Now, had Abraham kept Hagar and Ishmael there, 
this would have continued to be a sore spot forevermore. As long as they were together, it would have been a sore spot. So God said, I have chosen to bless through Isaac and give the inheritance there, so really it would be better if Hagar and Ishmael went on out and made their own life rather than being here and living in nothing but jealousy and anger and envy for the rest of their lives. This might be traumatic, but in the long run, they'll be better off. Because I did tell you that Isaac will be the one where your seed is called and the inheritance will go. And also of the son of the bondwoman, will I make a nation because he is your seed. So I'll make a nation of him as well. Don't worry about it. Uh, and Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it to Hagar, putting on her shoulder and the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. There must have really been some attitudes there. A bottle of water and some bread. He was a very wealthy man. I don't understand why he didn't at least give her a few camels and a cow and sheep and goats and, you know, but gave her bread and water. That's what you do to prisoners you don't like in prison. Uh, there's no comment here. It just tells the story the way it was. I, I, I'm mystified in a way. All I can think is there must have really been some raw feelings. The water was spent in the bottle, and she cast the child into one of the shrubs and went and sat down over against him a good way off, as it were a bow shot. For she said, Let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him and lifted up her voice and wept. God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, hold him in your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. Had she just not seen this well? When she sat down, was looking the other direction? Or was that well miraculously created right there on the spot? It doesn't say. I don't know. So she gave him a drink, and God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass at that time, at that, time that Abimelech and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. And Abimelech said, you know, you prayed for me, the wombs were opened, uh, God didn't kill me, I can see by everything that's going on in your life that God is with you. There again, as we were talking the other night, we lead our lives. Would it be obvious to anyone that God is with us? We've taken the name now, Emmanuel, God with us. And we hope that he is with us and it comes to be more so with us. Well, would people around at some point begin to say, it's obvious God is with you? That would be a nice thing to have said about us. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me nor with my son nor with my son's son 
but according to the kindness that I have done to you. Abimelech did not fully trust Abraham at this point, after the lies that had been told, and he's telling, don't you do that anymore to me. Make a covenant with me that you shall do to me into the land wherein you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. And Abraham reproved Abimelech because of a well of water, which Abimelech's servants had violently taken away. So he says, yeah, I might have lied to you, but your servants took my well away that I dug. Well, we've we, we got ourselves an altercation going here. Nobody trusts anybody. They're stealing from each other. And Abimelech said, I wot not who has done this thing, neither did you tell me, neither yet heard I of it, but today. Why is this story in here? Well, maybe it's because there was conflict, and it's a way for us to see how you work out a conflict, how you, how you resolve the problem. Now they could have taken up arms and killed each other here, killed off each other's family and settled it with, by war, but they didn't. Abimelech said, hey, I'm innocent. I didn't know what was going on. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and both of them made a covenant. Notice that Abraham, even though he had his insecurities and light about his wife, he tried to be a very fair man. And instead of, of accusing him, saying, you stole that well, you owe me, he was going to make peace by going, what, the second mile? By turning the other cheek? By offering a gift to Abimelech when Abimelech had actually, or his men, had sinned against Abraham. So he was bending over backward here to try to make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Our father Abraham was a man who tried to keep peace and tried and helped make peace. Even the deal with Sarah was a peacekeeping effort in a way. Uh, let's lie to them so they won't kill me. <laughs> let's don't break the peace by me being killed. And Abimelech said to Abraham, verse 20, What mean these seven new lambs which you have set by themselves? What do you got these sheep? I don't expect that Abimelech expected Abraham to give him any lambs. He says, What are these seven lambs set aside here for? And he said, For these seven new lambs shall you take of my hand, that they may be a witness to me that I have digged this well. Wherefore he called that place Beersheba, or the will of the oath, because there they swore, both of them. Thus they made a covenant in Beersheba. They made peace. They made a covenant, shook hands, gave sheep. Then Abimelech rose up, and called the chief captain of his host, and returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba, and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. He thanked God for peace having been made, and that no one was killed, and things were good again. And Abraham sojourned in the Philistines' land many days. All right, I've gone a little over an hour here. Well, I guess not considering singing. But uh, there's a good place to stop for tonight. And uh, we'll see you tomorrow night.